Good morning, Centennial. It's good to be here with you. And I bring you greetings from your friends at Mile High Ministries. We really appreciate our partnership over the years and your generosity, our partnership together in seeking the peace, God's peace, for our city. Last time I was here at Centennial, I shared the story of Clara Brown, Aunt Clara Brown, who was one of the founding pioneers, original pioneers of Denver. Yesterday was the 135th anniversary of Clara Brown's death. And so we celebrated, we had our first annual Clara Brown Day yesterday. And we had planned a big party and we had passed out flyers all over the neighborhood. And then uh, tougher restrictions were put in place by the city. And so we had to go back through the neighborhood and uninvite everybody to our party. Uh, so we didn't get to do the party we wanted to do, but we, what we did do was we erected seven huge banners all the way around the block that we've named Clara Brown Commons, and it's where we're building an affordable housing community that's named in her honor. And uh, right now there are 14 tiny homes on the property that will soon house 14 formerly homeless women. Uh, which is a great way to honor the legacy of somebody like Aunt Clara. Today I want to tell you the story about another original Denver pioneer, Edward Weinkoop, whose friends called him Ned. Uh, so I'll tell that story and then I've got another story for you from the book of Acts. And we'll see how those two stories uh, shape one another and speak to one another and speak to us. So, we'll pick up the story of Ned Weinkoop when he is 22 years old. Uh, Ned is living in his brother's home in Kansas, living on the farm, helping out on the farm. He's bored. He'd like to get out of his brother's house. He'd like to have an adventure and make something of his life. And so, he hears about a group of people who are going to be traveling. This is 1858. He hears about a group of people who are going to be traveling out to the Pikes Peak region because there's rumors that there might be gold, and gold there and that there could be a gold rush in the future. So Ned, at 22, signs up with this group of adventurers and they uh, travel out to Pikes Peak region. And uh, right about where Pueblo is today, they team up with another group, a tougher group, kind of a rough group of people led by a guy named William Larimer who called himself General Larimer. And Ned becomes one of General Larimer's chief lieutenants. They move up the front range to the confluence of the South Platte River and a little creek that had a lot of cherry trees in it. And at that spot, they found a piece of land that another group of people had planned to build a town on and they jumped the claim. In other words, they stole the land. And for his part in stealing that land, Ned Weinkoop got to be one of the town fathers of Denver, uh, the, the town that that group established there. And uh, in fact, the following year when the gold rush did happen, Ned was named the town sheriff, and then later the town marshal. 
And it's interesting because he had no experience in law enforcement and he had no police force to back him up and there weren't even actually laws written in place yet, but it was a boom town and it was a rough place and a violent place and Ned was up to the job. He was a big strapping guy, he was strong, he was tough, he was willing to face whatever he had, had to. He was uh, a dashing kind of character, he was handsome, kind of a ladies man, he was an actor in, in the town plays and musicals. He was also a real dedicated Christian, though that part of his life may not have been a high priority right at that time. Denver, Boomtown Denver, was kind of a hotbed of political controversy and divisions. Uh, the chief one was, because we were right on the cusp of the Civil War at that time, there was a division between Southern sympathizers and Northern sympathizers. And Ned looked at this new town and he saw a, a place of opportunity, a place where a, a, an ambitious young man like himself might be able to leverage some relationships into political success and economic success. So it was important for him to stay on the right side of the right people and to kind of walk the fine line of all these controversies. The thing that held Denver together during that time was the hot pursuit of wealth during a gold rush. And then also, as so often is the case, a common enemy. That common enemy eventually came to be the indigenous people who were living there when white people from the east began to show up. Those people were Cheyenne and Arapaho who welcomed these new neighbors at first but eventually were displaced by the new folks and then tensions rose and we'll talk more about what happened in a moment. When the Civil War did break out, Ned signed up to be a soldier and quickly became an officer. Uh, and then he actually became a hero in the Battle of Glorieta Pass, which was a battle in New Mexico that kept Confederate armies from coming into Colorado and taking the gold from the gold fields. So Ned came back to Denver as a hero. He was the toast of the town. And then he, uh, he stayed in the army, and when things got violent between the Americans and the indigenous people, Ned became an Indian fighter. And he was eager for this role. In fact, he bragged about how eager he was to have the opportunity to shed blood. He felt that the Indians were in the way of progress, that they were not uh, fully human, not fully deserving of the rights that others human, other humans have, and if they had to be moved or even killed in order for Denver to grow and prosper, well, that was the price he was willing to pay. Now I want to fast forward to four years, to 1864, September of 1864. Ned is now 28 years old, and he's in charge of a company of about 125 cavalrymen. And on an afternoon in September, he sets off with his company to ride south from Denver in search of Cheyenne warriors who had taken hostage 
four white children. Ned's job was to find these children and bring them back, and then if he could, to fight and defeat the Cheyenne. So with his 20, 125 men, he rode out into the plains, and at one point they came over a rise in the flat ground, and as they came over this rise here in front of them, to their surprise, were 800 Cheyenne warriors, painted for war, spread out in a battle line, and vastly outnumbering Ned and his men. So the two sides slowly began walking towards one another, unclear about what might happen. And you can just imagine, it's like a scene out of a Hollywood movie. The tensions are rising, and if somebody had fired a shot, it probably would have been a massacre. But instead, these two sides just rode closely to one another, and then they stopped within a few yards of each other, each waiting for the other to make the move. And when they stopped, staring at each other across this short distance, suddenly the Cheyenne line split, and an older man came riding forward. And he asked if he could speak to the leader of the white soldiers. So Ned rode forward to meet with him, and it turns out that this older man was Black Kettle, who was one of the principal leaders of the Cheyenne people. And so then he and Ned sat down, and they built a campfire, and they sat down to talk. They talked for hours, and those hours actually even turned into days. They stayed several days there, sitting around the campfire, talking about their lives, talking about their families and their communities, negotiating trying to find a way of peace, trying to understand one another. In the end, Black Kettle offered to redeem these hostages at his own expense, and in fact at great risk to himself because in doing so he alienated the younger fighters in his community who were spoiling for war. These two guys became friends, and, and Ned was surprised by what happened because Black Kettle actually became a dear friend to him, kind of an older mentor. Uh, one author even used a modern phrase. These guys wouldn't have used this phrase, but he called them soulmates. They connected so well. But the big surprise for Ned Weinkoop in this moment, these days that he spent with the Cheyenne, was that he realized the Cheyenne were human. Although their language and their food and their dress and their customs were different, their love of family was the same. Their love of community was the same. Their ambitions and their desire for a, a, a peaceful life was the same. And Ned realized that there's not as much difference as we might have thought. That moment changed Ned Weinkoop's life. Now, I want to leave Ned Weinkoop for a moment, and I want to move to our passage for today, the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, where we find another younger leader, Peter, the Apostle Peter, whose encounter, whose surprising encounter with a group of forbidden people also changed the way he looked at life. So, uh, Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, is a very patient storyteller at this point. In other words, the chapter's pretty long. 
And so rather than reading the whole thing, I'm going to tell you kind of a paraphrased uh, and a little bit condensed version. Story picks up in Caesarea. So that's a town on the Mediterranean coast. And in that town, there is a good and God-fearing man named Cornelius, who uh, happens to be a high-ranking Roman military officer. And one night, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Cornelius, your prayers and your generosity toward the poor have been noticed by God. And now I want you to send some servants south along the coast to the town of Joppa, where you'll find a man named Peter who will come and tell you what you're supposed to do next. So Cornelius calls a couple of his servants, tells them what happened, and sends them on their way. As they're on their way, in the town of Joppa, south of Caesarea, also along the coast, Peter is up on the roof of a friend's house. And there he's praying. And it's almost lunchtime. He's getting hungry. And so he falls into a trance. And in this trance, he has a dream, a vision, in which a sheet is lowered down from the sky in front of him. And on this sheet, there are all kinds of animals. And then a voice comes to him and says, Peter, go ahead, kill and eat. The problem is, Peter is a faithful Jew of his time and context and culture. And part of the way that Jewish people of his time maintained their distinctiveness was through um, codes, really very rigid codes about what they were permitted to eat. Well, it turns out that on this sheet are all kinds of animals that Peter's not permitted to eat. And so he says, no way, forbid it, Lord, that I should eat something like that. I've never touched something that's impure or unclean or profane. But the voice says, don't call something profane that I have called clean. Now, kill and eat. And then a third time the voice tells him, kill and eat. Peter, you might recall from other stories in Peter's life, sometimes Peter needed to have instruction reinforced and repeated to him, which I really identify with. He, was, he learned, but he learned slowly and needed to be told several times. So the Spirit tells him three times, kill and eat. But then suddenly, the dream ends and the sheet is lifted back up to heaven. And then right at that moment, there's a knock at the door. It's Cornelius's servant. So uh, Peter answers the door. They talk to one another, find out what's happening. And Peter agrees to go with them back to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. So they journey for a couple of days. And when they get to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius opens the door, and he's so excited to see this man that God has sent. Uh, Cornelius is filled with enthusiasm, but he's kind of new to this particular religious tradition because he, he falls down on his knees and he starts worshiping Peter, which was totally not cool. And so Peter says, no, 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 I'm just a guy. Get up, get up. 
and uh, let me come into your house and meet your people. And as he does, it dawns on Peter, I'm in the house of Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is a word that, that uh, we use, that they would have used simply to mean people who were not Jewish, not members of Peter's own religion and culture. And the thing is, uh, the Jews of Peter's time and place were very strict about avoiding mingling their lives with Gentile people. Uh, the particular Gentiles of this region, even, and of Cornelius' house, would have been Romans, the very people who were oppressing, violently oppressing, Peter's community. So Peter knew he, he couldn't be in this place. But to his credit, in that moment, he made the connection between his dream and what was happening before him right now. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or to even visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. I like the way that the message paraphrase, paraphrases that verse. That's Roman, uh, excuse me, Acts 10, 28. This is what the message version says. You know, I'm sure, that this is highly irregular. Jews just don't do this. They don't visit and relax with people of another race. But God has just shown me that no race is better than any other. So then Peter comes into the house, and sure enough, it's filled up with all of Cornelius' friends and family, a whole house full of Gentile people. And Peter begins to tell them the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And as he is preaching, it is dawning on him that something really big is happening. It's not just that he's breaking a taboo. It's that something is changing in the very nature of this new and emerging Jesus movement. It's not just a new kind of Judaism that Gentiles might be able to join if they're willing to pick up on some of the cultural aspects. But in fact, what's happening Peter is realizing is a wide open, inclusive, universal movement of God. And just to make sure that Peter doesn't backtrack on this, the Holy Spirit suddenly shows up and shows out and falls on everybody in a spectacular way. And Peter looks around and says, there's no way that anyone can prevent these people from being baptized. These people who this morning were my enemy. These people who this morning were the oppressors. There's nothing that can prevent them from being baptized and therefore from becoming my sisters and my brothers in the family of Christ. So that's the story that's found in Luke chapter 10. And what I want to point out is a couple of things. I want to point out what happened and what happens. Something big happened 
and something big continues to happen because of that story in Acts chapter 10. What happened is that the Spirit of God was making it clear that Gentiles, non-Jews, were welcome in this emerging Jesus movement. The Spirit was erasing the exclusive religious, ethnic, and cultural boundaries of that time and place. Boundaries that had served to exclude people and keep them apart and had served to exclude non-Jews from the way of Jesus. Those boundaries were being removed. But what I think is really important is that not only was the fellowship of Jesus being opened up a little bit from Jews to Gentiles of that region, what I think was happening is much bigger. I think the entire social mechanism by which humans divide ourselves into different groups and then name some as more worthy or more important than others, some as clean and some as unclean, some as valuable and some as invaluable, some as, uh, as even ones we can throw away. That entire social mechanism, which really is the mechanism by which human beings have been building community and civilization from the very dawn of humanity, that entire social mechanism is being declared null and void in this moment by Peter, the man whom Jesus said he would build the church upon. The entire culture and life of the church is shifting in this moment. What I think happens because of that, what I think should be happening in our lives today is the ongoing ramifications from that big change. See, Peter is modeling for us the expectation of the journey that the Spirit of God will take us on as we follow Jesus into the world. The word that I want to use to describe this thing that happens, this thing that happened to Peter and happens to us, might surprise you. I searched around for just the right word, and I like the word that I found, but, well, here's the word. It's repentance. That word might surprise you because the way we typically use the word repentance is associated with some sort of wrongdoing, some sense of guilt or regret about something we've done wrong. But it's not clear that Peter has done anything wrong in this moment. But I still think it's the right word. And here's why. It might be that some of you have uh, been to one of the Colorado prayer lunches that are held downtown every year. And if you go to those, you might have heard a couple of years ago Father Greg Boyle. Now, Father Greg is from Los Angeles, and he's been living the gospel and loving gang members in Los Angeles for more than four decades. And as he shared stories about his homies whom he loves, Father Greg, whom the homies just called G, G said something. And what he said was, he actually invited us to a, a practice of daily repentance. 
But he wasn't talking just about uh, repenting for something that we had done wrong. Here's what he meant. We get the word repentance from a Greek word, a Greek compound word, metanoia. So metanoia combines two words, meta, which means beyond, and nusis, which means to know. So literally, metanoia would mean know beyond, but probably a better way to think of it is to think beyond the mind that you have had. So when G, when Father Greg invites us to daily repentance, he's saying every day under the guidance of the Spirit, we need to learn to think beyond the mind that we've had. Think bigger. The Spirit is bigger. The Spirit is continually opening this up. Just about the time that we think we know who's welcome and who belongs, the Spirit opens it up bigger and bigger and bigger. And the invitation of Acts chapter 10 is for us to keep thinking beyond the mind that we have. That's what happened to Peter at the house of Cornelius. He went in with one mind about who could be part of this Jesus movement. And we might be nice to people outside of it, but only certain people could really be part of it. And he came out thinking completely beyond the mind that he had. Father Greg invites us to have a, a Acts chapter 10 moment like that, and I love what he says here. He, he says, imagine, if you will, with God, a circle of compassion. Now, imagine nobody standing outside of that circle. And then imagine us moving ourselves closer to the margins of that circle so that the margins themselves will be erased. Imagine us standing there with those whose dignity has been stripped. We locate ourselves with the poor and with the powerless and with the voiceless. Out at the edges, we join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Isn't that beautiful? Too often, Father Greg says, we Christians strike a high moral distance that separates us from them. And yet, it is God's dream come true when we recognize that there exists no daylight between us and them. We live, as you well know, in a time of tension, division, competing worldviews and plenty of demonizing. The invitation from Acts chapter 10 is for us to be people who move beyond the mind that we have had, who take risks and move closer to the boundaries until the boundaries cease to exist, to stand with the demonized until the demonizing stops. 
Peter's experience of moving beyond the mind that he had led him to a faith that was less ethnocentric, more open, more inclusive, more welcoming. It was risky. He was being led out on a limb. And he had to wonder, am I getting this right? And if I don't, and even if I do, how's my community going to respond? Am I being too generous with God's love? So I wonder if the Spirit lowered that sheet down in front of each of us, who might be on it? What might be on it? What might we want to call profane that God would say, don't call anything profane? Or if we got led to the house of Cornelius, where would it be? Who would be there? How would you feel to experience God's generous inclusion of those folks? I have to guess that in the moment we're living in, broadly speaking, but particularly in the next nine days, that our contemplation of this passage in this way would probably touch for a lot of us on issues of race, class, politics. Not for a minute am I suggesting that anybody listening to this message would say that those who are of a different race, who are of a different skin color and therefore a different life experience are outside of God's love. And not for a minute would I suggest that anyone listening would say that those from a different political group or who vote differently are outside the family of God. But what we might ask ourselves is, how many of them and how, many, how welcome are they within our family? They're not outside of God's loving embrace, but are they outside of our loving embrace? And how willing are we to be like Peter and go to Cornelius' house and join the family there? Well, as I close, I want to come back to the story of Ned Weinkoop, who must have been feeling some of the same things as the Apostle Peter. How will my community respond? Because of my relationship with the Cheyenne people. So let me tell you what happened after those few days that Ned and Black Kettle spent around the campfire. Black Kettle ransomed those girls, uh, those white hostages, and uh, they were taken back to their families. After that, Ned Winecoop brought Black Kettle and a group of very courageous Cheyenne and Arapaho leaders up to Denver unarmed, right into the village of their enemy with whom they were at war. The idea was for them to spend a few days talking with the governor of Colorado, talking to Governor Evans, and seeing if they could work out peace. Ned and Black Kettle had become convinced, we can work this out. They actually believed we could be friends, we can coexist in this place, and we can work together. We can be part of one community together. However, 
Governor Evans wasn't going to have anything to do with that. He did go to the negotiations, or at least for part of them. But he had raised an army and he had promised a war to the citizens of Denver, to his voters. And he wasn't going to disappoint them now. He was actually really angry with Weinkoop for threatening to ruin the war that he had planned by negotiating peace. And so he undermined the negotiations. They fell through. They failed. And that failure led directly to the Sand Creek Massacre, perhaps the darkest moment in Colorado history, one of the darkest in American history, when the third Colorado Volunteers claimed that they met a massive army of Cheyenne and defeated them in open battle. But the truth is that they snuck up on an innocent village and on a cold morning in November, they killed hundreds of women and children and older men because all the men of fighting age were away hunting. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we also know that doesn't mean that the world will reward or appreciate peacemakers. Those who take away our social mechanism of building community by dividing ourselves off from those people Ned's community did not appreciate him, did not appreciate his attempt to build peace with the Cheyenne. They also didn't appreciate that after Sand Creek, Ned was part of the group that finally blew the whistle on what really happened, told the truth about what really happened, that it wasn't a glorious victory, it was a massacre. Ned's community didn't appreciate that a bit. Uh, in his biography of Ned Weinkoop, Lewis Kraft says this, until he stood up against the attack at Sand Creek, Ned had been regarded as a reckless and charming Denver pioneer. But by 1865, he had become persona non grata, unwelcome in the city, almost alone. He stood firm in his beliefs that Indians were human beings. Ned's encounter with the Cheyenne led him to move beyond the mind he had, to reverse the social mechanism that divide people and leads to violence. Ned Weinkoop gave most of the rest of his life to serving indigenous people. He paid an enormous price for his openness to this movement of God in his life. The Apostle Peter's encounter in the house of Cornelius led him also to move beyond the mind he had, to announce that God had reversed that social mechanism that had once divided people and leads to violence. It also changed the very nature of Christian faith and therefore of human history though it would prove to be a lesson that we have a hard time remembering.
that we have to relearn, apparently, in every generation. So let us pray and hope that we, followers of Jesus living in the year 2020, will learn that lesson and will move beyond the mind that we have had.